this is highly practical in a in a in a conversation with skeptics to to memorize this best way to memorize it to, is to really understand it once you understand it you should be able to bring it up copiously um, so this is called uh, bridging the gap that is a that is a phrase um, in philosophy because one of the common objections that you will hear from skeptics is okay so maybe maybe there is a first cause maybe this first cause is necessary right but how do i know that this cause is anything like the perfect being that is you know god according to the western uh judeo-christian tradition like all 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 they would say all your argument has proven so far is that there is a uncaused necessary cause um, that explains all concrete beings but there seems to be a gap between that and a all-knowing all-powerful uh, personal uh, being that wants a relationship with you right so this uh, what we're about to see are some arguments for why we should infer that the first cause has many of the characteristic attributes of God um, and why this being is plausibly personal um, and eventually we're going to go and we're going to jump into moral arguments that show why this personal cause uh, is very much interested in our lives and how we live our lives um, and again filling in the picture closer and closer to the Judeo-Christian picture of God as we move forward with our series. Um, so, before we do so, I just want, before we jump into the arguments for why uh, this cause is personal and what other attributes there are, I just want to do a little bit of a refresher on Craig's version of the Kalam and uh, the reason why I can, uh, I believe that the world, we can be sure that the world had a beginning. Now, Craig's version of the Kalam, I highly uh, suggest that you guys memorize this. It's not long. It's uh, very catchy. Uh, and so it's really not that hard to memorize. Um, it's, it's, it's only three points. <clears throat> Premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Pre uh, and then conclusion, the universe has a cause, right? Um, so definitely memorize that. It is very important. Um, now this, this argument is deceptively simple because it, it, there's actually a lot that goes into it, right? In terms of backstage, what's going on, all the moving parts and the world of ideas that each of these premises is connected to. Um, but this is something that you could bring up with a non-believer and it and well, what if they don't think that the universe has a cause in the well place? that's the thing so you, these, these are not just put forward as assertions you have to argue for them right? so not only do you have to memorize Craig's version of the Kalam right? but if you really want to be effective you need to understand an argument for why the universe has a beginning as for the first premise everything that begins to exist has a cause that is just so blatantly obvious and has so much, uh, has so much plausibility uh, given that it is confirmed by our inductive experience of the world. 
how uh, things do not pop in and out of existence randomly. Um, it, there, and so inductively, it seems far more plausible than not. Uh, intuitively, it just seems obvious that the skeptic would really have to um, uh, kind of take on an onus of proof if he were to deny it. He would have to show why he has reasons to doubt it because it just seems so intuitively plausible that to believe otherwise, it seems we would need a really good reason to doubt it. Um, okay, so we're going to go back and um, we're going to re-look re re at the uh, argument for the beginning of the, of the universe that I uh, have created. And uh, it's a contingency argument for the beginning of the universe. Go forward. Okay, so now I really, really like this argument, and it's despite the fact that it has 12, uh, 11 propositions, it's actually not that hard to be able to memorize it. Because once you understand the argument, it sticks, and you can actually go through this with someone in a conversation. But it does require some effort. You have to really try to understand the moves that are being made, and then you'll be able to bring it up dialectically with a, with a skeptic. Now, um, premise one is that each thing in the universe could possibly not exist. That already has a lot of intuitive force because anything that you can think of, you can conceive of it being another way. Uh, you can conceive of that lamp not being there. Uh, I can move it uh, five feet to the right, so it doesn't seem to be necessarily in that uh, region of space-time. Um, but it also seems like its, it's very existence is unnecessary. Um, that you could really conceive of the world going on without it. Okay. Um, so I think that premise one has a lot of intuitive force to it. And so to, to negate it, again, um, I think we would need a good reason to negate it uh, because it seems more plausible than not. And so the onus of proof would again be on the skeptic to uh, take that up and, and show why I should doubt the first one because conceivably, I can th th imagine the world in different ways than it is. I can also imagine any particular thing in the world not being in the world. Okay. So, premise two, the universe depends for its existence on the existence of its constituent parts. That um, seems to be fairly obvious. You know, like the couch has parts. If each part of the couch stopped existing, the couch would stop existing, right? Because any composite depends for its existence upon the parts that make it up. If the universe is a composite, right, then the universe's existence depends upon all of its constituent parts. Number three, so therefore the universe depends for its existence on realities whose non-existence is possible. Are you guys with me so far? Okay. 
if the universe, number four, if the universe depends on realities whose non-existence is possible, then the non-existence of the universe is possible. Right? If each part of the couch could possibly not exist, then the couch could possibly not exist. Because, yes. say, each part of the couch stopped existing, well, then the couch would stop existing. So, the non-existence of the couch is possible. Same with the universe, because the universe is a composite. If the universe, de uh, okay, I already said that, okay. Proposition five, in an infinite span of time, all possibilities would obtain. So, this uh, is kind of leaning on a certain conception of possibility. Namely, that possibilities depend on actualities, right? So, Sarah, say that I have a hairspray bottle. Then, and say, uh, <clears throat> say that the only, in, in that hairspray bottle is in this room, and this room is the only thing that exists in reality, okay? Then it is possible that the hairspray bottle, you know, spray its chemicals. That would be a real possibility. But say there are no lawnmowers in this room, and this room is all that exists, then it doesn't really seem that it would be a, a possibility that lawnmowers, that, that uh, mowing grass with a lawnmower would not be a possibility if there were no grass, if there were no lawnmowers, if there were nothing with which we could create a lawnmower out of the stuff around us, okay? So, what, if, if possibility ha depends in some sense on actuality, right? So say we have the universe, and the universe is actual, right? And so possibilities are depending on what, on, on the actual universe. But one of those possibilities is the non-existence of the universe. If given an infinite span of time, it seems that there would be enough time for every single possibility to come to fruition. But one of those possibilities is that the universe ceased to exist. So, that brings us to Proposition 6. So, therefore, if past time is infinite, then the universe would already have ceased to exist. Proposition 7. If at any point the universe ceased to exist, it could not come back into existence from pure nothing. From pure nothing, nothing comes. then you might say, well, don't we believe in creation ex nihilo, Creation out of nothing? Yes, but we don't believe that something came out of pure nothing. Right? Because when the, when the universe did not exist, according to Christian tradition, something else still did exist, namely God. So the universe did not come out of a philosophical nothing, a pure nothing, which would be defined as 
nothing at all. There's just absolutely nothing, right? We don't think that before the universe there was pure nothing because God existed. There was just no matter, no time, no space, etc. Right? That's so when we say creation out of nothing, we don't mean a pure nothing. We mean that before the universe was, the universe was not. But God still existed. So in fact the Christian believes that something came from something, not a pure nothing. Um but it seems that the conclusion is uh, of what of our argument is that you know, um, if the universe ceased to exist, right, no, it, it it wouldn't come back into existence because it doesn't, nothing doesn't have the power to bring something because then it would have power and then it would be something. So, proposition eight. But there is something now. Justin exists. Karsten exists, right? Um, uh, proposition 9. So, the universe never at any point ceased to exist. Proposition 10. So, the universe does not have an infinite pastime. 11. Therefore, the universe had a beginning. Okay. And this is my contingency argument for the beginning of the physical universe. Right. Now that's 11 propositions, but I'm telling you, you can get it. If you, if you really, if you put your effort into it, you'll memorize it and you'll be able to bring it up with non-believers. It does help. I always have like a case in my book bag of arguments that I can just pull out if someone's really interested and then I can read from it. All right, go, go ahead, Ford. Go forward again. Okay. Forward. <laughs> I don't like technology. <laughs> All right. I think it's just the, the media that you're using. What? I think it's just the media that you're using. Yeah, I don't like I don't like Prezi really. Um, so this is um, we're now getting into the attributes of this this cause of the universe. What might we infer about it? We could infer uh, number one that the cause of the universe must be separate. From the physical universe. Intriguing. So, in other words, if uh, the cause the cause of the universe could not be a teacup or an atom, because atoms began to exist when the universe began to exist. So, the atom could not exist before it existed in order to cause itself. In order for that to be the case, it would need to both exist and not exist. But that's absurd, right? So, whatever uh, caused the universe must uh, be separate from the universe. And from that we can derive several things. The universe is, mat is material, therefore the cause must be immaterial because matter started. Um, the, the physical universe is spatially extended. So the cause of the universe must be incorporeal or spaceless. The, the, uh, the physical universe is temporal. It is bound by time. Uh, therefore, the cause of the universe is timeless outside of time or eternal. 
uh, something, proposition eight, something outside of time cannot undergo change since things change within time. Well, the cause is outside of time, so therefore the cause is changeless. Okay? Things only change within time, like in uh, uh, different uh, picture frames in a movie. Um, now, the cause of the universe must be unimaginably powerful. And a basic rule, uh, kind of rule of thumb definition of power is the ability to produce effects. This cause produces the effect that is the universe. So that is, relative to us, enormously powerful. Right? Now, Proposition 11, therefore, well, before we get to that, I could add one more thing. The universe is basically beautiful. Amen. And there is stunning amounts of beauty in the universe. Not only that, but the universe seems to display signs of intelligent design and order. So, what we can infer from that and what we can derive from that is that this cause is plausibly more like a craftsman than like some sort of impersonal uh, object, right? There seems to be um, intentionality in, in its works, right? Uh, in, like an artist is to a painting. Um, it seems that out of the many possible conceivable universes, they didn't necessarily need to have so much beauty or creatures able to experience beauty. But what we find is, A, there are creatures capable of experiencing beauty, and number two, there are stunning amounts of beauty. So given that that did not need to be the case, and there are many other scenarios where that would not actually have been the case, it seems that this was picked, it was chosen, um, with uh, this, that the explanation of this specified complexity is that there was an intention behind it. And that's the same goes for the, the order that appears to us through the universe. So plausibly, this cause is more like a craftsman than, than some sort of uh, impersonal you know, thing. Now, therefore, there is an unimaginably powerful, eternal, immutable, incorporeal, immaterial, plausibly craftsmanlike cause of the universe. Right. Go ahead. Now, um, this next one is, uh, that last one was just some basic things you can deduce from the cause of being separate from the universe um, uh, and uh, by you know witnessing things within the universe like beauty and order. But this next argument is by Richard Swinburne um, for uh, why he believes that the, that the cause is personal. <clears throat> Oh, 
Oh, yeah, it's man yeah. of culture, I see. Okay, I'm looking at You're a man of culture, it looks like. <laughs> of course. Gotta have that existential spongebob. You like You <laughs> I feel like that really represents me, yeah. my personality. On one hand, spongebob, goofy. Mm-hmm. On the other, existential, deep, broody. Okay, Very so... Here's uh, Swinburne's argument for why there, there is a per- the cause is personal. Num- uh, premise one, there are at least, um, and really, you could really narrow it down to this, two kinds of causal explanation. Scientific explanations and personal or agental explanations. Now, scientific explanation... Is, that, uh, is given in terms of the laws of nature and initial conditions of the universe. Um, and a personal or agental explanation are, uh, is given in terms of an agent and what he or she wills to do and the reasons or motives of the agent for that action. So, premise two, the first state of the universe cannot be explained by prior laws of nature and prior initial conditions because there were no prior uh, there were no prior initial condition uh, initial conditions or laws of nature so think think of the first state of the universe right the first moment that moment cannot be explained uh, in a uh, cannot have a, a scientific explanation. It, it, it in principle cannot because you know the laws of nature themselves right began to exist in that moment. So they cannot be explained by further laws because these laws of nature began to exist. Um, so any explanation given in terms of laws of nature, is in principle in, impossible uh, to explain the, ver- the, the, the singularity, if you will, at the very beginning of the universe. Yeah. The only explanation that is left to use is an agent explanation, a personal explanation, which is given in terms of uh, you know, reasons and motives for the agent's action. Um, let me give you an analogy for the distinction between these two types of explanations. So you come, you run downstairs, and you see that your mother, is, you see that there's a pot and a kettle, and it's steaming. And you ask your mother, "Hey, why is the kettle steaming?" And she says, "Well, um, I uh, there there is fire under it." And the fire is heating up the molecules inside of the uh, kettle um, to, to such that they begin to move rapidly and violently. Um, and uh, the consequence is that the water molecules begin to disperse into the form of vapor. And that is why you see sm- uh, smoke. Wow. What kind of mom would say that? Biologist. Maybe your mom would tell me. Your mom's the biologist. What kind of kid would say that? Let's just be honest. (laughs) My mom would just tell me, "Yo, man, it's cooking because it's it's on because I'm cooking it now." Shut up. (laughs) 
Well, that brings us to the second type of explanation, which is a gentle explanation. She could give you that first one, which would be true. It would be a scientific explanation of it. But the second one, she could say, well, because I wanted to make you some tea, because I love you. Would you like some tea? She almost say I love you, though. Right? Well, it depends on the mom. It depends on the mom. True, that. My mom would. So you see that the, the kettle can be explained in more than one way, scientifically and agentally, um, by an agent or according to the laws of nature. But, of course, the first moment in, of the universe cannot be explained by laws of nature, because that is when the laws of nature began to exist. So the only explanation left between the live options that we know of is an agent explanation, that which consists of motives and reasons for doing something. All right, and that is uh, Swinburne's argument for uh, why the cause is personal. Now, here is uh, Craig's argument for why the cause must be personal. There are only two things in our experience which fit the description of something that is, in, uh, that is immaterial, changeless, timeless, and spaceless. Number one, abstract objects, or two, minds. Now, uh, proposition two, abstract objects do not stand in a causal relationships. They are causally off-feet or impotent. The number seven, for instance, cannot cause anything. So, conclusion, the best explanation is that it is a mind. Now, minds are plausibly uh, fit this description of being immaterial, uh, changeless, timeless, and spaceless. They're minds? Minds, yes. Uh, because our identities seem to persist throughout our lifetimes. Oh, let's say minds, like the... Minds, no, like oh, okay. personal minds. minds. Sorry, sorry. Nice. Okay, now, okay. I don't want to. I don't want to go into side arguments for why the mind, why we have good reasons to believe that the mind is immaterial. But uh, suffice it is to say that it is more plausible than not. It has a lot of intuitive force. Um, that, of course, depends on the person you are speaking with, and it depends on the intuitions that they are bringing to the conversation. It may not seem plausible to them, but uh, there are a lot of really good arguments for why the mind is immaterial. Um, the most simple one that you can bring up is uh, you can ask them, well, um, you know, do you believe that you're the same person that you were yesterday? And they'll say, well, yeah. Um, then, it, you know, assuming they didn't have any crazy life-changing experiences between today and yesterday. And then you can ask, well, surely, surely you've lost some atoms between now and then, right? You've lost some skin cells. You know, so what is it about you that is persisting? You know, what what is what is this thing that continues over time? Every seven years, we 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 have a completely different set of cells, a completely different set of atoms. Um, so what what is it about identity that persists over time? Are you the same person that you were when you were a child? Is there anything that is the same? And um, so, for instance, there was this, uh, and you know, when you, when you actually think about it, you know, our, 
our courts, our court system, and our justice system really depends upon the persistence of identity. Um, if 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 Carson comes to me and says, "Hey, you owe me like five hundred dollars," and I say, "Well, here's the thing. So I'm just a collection of atoms." And when you came to me and you lent me that money, I was that collection of atoms. But since then, some atoms have been taken from me and new atoms have been added. So I am, a, I am now a different <laughs> set of atoms. And so I'm not, uh, I'm not the same person as when you uh, lent me the money. So um, I, I, I'm afraid that I'm not responsible for paying back that uh that that loan. Hold on, I'm gonna call this my city loans, right? <laughs> and then and then Adam and then and then Carson rears back and slaps me across the face, and I'm like, "Hey, why did you do that?" And he says, "I'm sorry, that wasn't me. That was my former set of Adams." <laughs> right? So everything begins to get really trippy with justice once you uh, take away the persistence of, I, uh, of personal identity over time. But if personal identity does persist over time, but obviously our material makeup doesn't, right? Uh, things are being taken away and added all the time, then whatever it is that persists will be plausibly immaterial, right? So, go forward. Okay, so the third and final argument from this version of the Kalam, there are other arguments for why the cause must be personal from, a, uh, from the perspective of Proust and uh, Robert Kuhn's, their argument. But for this, for our purposes, using Craig's version of the Kalam, this is um, the third argument for why it is, uh, we are justified in believing that the cause is personal. Now, premise one. When the sufficient conditions for its effect are present, a physical effect accompanies the physical cause. Okay? Okay. Um, and I'm going to give an analogy for that in just a second. But first, proposition two. Since the eternal cause of the universe is sufficient to produce its effect, we should expect the universe to be co-eternal. Um, if it is like a physical cause. So, um, the analogy is, okay, say you have a bucket of water. Now, water uh, freezes at a temperature of zero degrees centigrade, and there is a bucket of water that has been at a temperature of zero degrees centigrade from all eternity. Well, if that's the case, then we should expect that the water has always been frozen from all eternity. Because when the sufficient conditions for an effect are present, for a, for a physical effect are present, um, then the, it always accompanies the physical cause. It, it is simultaneous with it. So if, if, if we have a bucket of water, and we lower the, the temperature and it becomes below zero, zero degrees centigrade, then the water will begin to freeze simultaneously, right? It won't wait a thousand years before it does so unless there is some sort of intervening um, 
factors, but in that case, if there are intervening factors, then the sufficient conditions are not present, right? So um, that, that's what we got so far. It seems that, uh, you know, if I take a rock and I throw it into the pond and it hits, and it hits the, uh, the water, simultaneously ripples will begin to go out from where I hit the, the pond with my rock. Because the sufficient conditions are present, the, 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 the effect will follow simultaneously upon the cause. Okay? Now, here, proposition three, but the universe has not always existed eternally. Right? So, if, if, so far what we've got is if this cause is just like a physical cause, then we would expect the universe to be co-eternal with it. But the universe is not co-eternal with it. The universe has a beginning. Right? That's, uh, that's like the case of uh, water having uh, being below zero degrees centigrade for eternity, and then one Tuesday afternoon, then it freezes. Right? The freezing would be, have a beginning even though the sufficient conditions were eternal. But that does not make sense in terms of physical causation. So, the eternal cause, okay, proposition for the eternal cause is sufficient for the effect that is the universe, but has not always provided the sufficient conditions for the creation of the universe. Five, a personal agent can freely and spontaneously will to create new effects that are not determined by prior antecedent conditions. And so, Proposition 6, if the cause of the universe were a personal agent, then this would explain how an effect with a beginning can arise from a cause which is eternal. And so the best explanation is that it is a personal agent. This cause, it has some kind of free will like we do, some sort of intentionality. Now, the analogy I give is Imagine that there is a man who has been sitting from, from, from eternity. Well, if this man, you know, say he's immortal. You have this immortal man. He's been sitting there for, from all eternity. And then suddenly, he stands up. Okay? That is conceivable given that a man can have the sufficient conditions to stand up for three hours. And then... He can have the sufficient conditions to stand up right away, but he chooses not to for a period of a few hours and then chooses to stand up, right? Even though the sufficient conditions were present the entire time, he chose a particular moment to cause this effect of standing up. Um, so the best explanation for why the universe is finite even though the cause is eternal, is that this cause must be less like a physical thing with physical effects and much, uh, and much more like an agent that has free will, which has, sufficient con uh, has all the sufficient conditions to produce effects, but chooses when to exercise it.
So between these two things, it is far more like an agent. And that is Al-Ghazali's argument for why the cause of the universe is an agent, is personal. Now that's it. <clears throat> Thank you.